Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Neil White, one of the co-founders of the highly successful Backpage Press company which tells sports stories through publishing books and also producing podcasts. A journalist by profession, the success of one of Backpage Press's early books, Graham Hunter's Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, saw Neil and Martin Gregg put the sports journalism to one side to concentrate on their new company, which has, over the past few years, gone from strength to strength, publishing a number of top quality sports books, along with podcasts including The Big Interview and Between the Lines. Neil, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. I've been listening to the show. It's been a, a fantastic, um, fantastic listen. You're doing a grand job. And as I said to you before, I can't believe you're scraping the bottom of the barrel quite so soon <laughs> in terms of your guests. I've run out of people that I'm related to that I can talk to, so... <laughs> I mentioned, obviously, you know, your your work with Martin Gregg, who was a previous guest on the podcast, in terms of Backpage Press. And one of the great things when I was reading just about how the company came about, almost like a conversation in a train journey back from Manchester to Glasgow with, with the two of you. But in it, you mentioned you had all these great ideas for sports books that you couldn't, either they weren't great ideas or you couldn't get a publisher, which was the kind of motivation. Are they still floating about in the ether or are, are, they, are they completely parked to one side? That's really funny. Um, like literally this morning, I've been working. Uh, I've been sort of pottering about with one of those ideas that w- were in my um folder on the desktop of my computer for many, many years. I mean, it's it's ten years now since Martin and I and Jim Porteous, who was sort of our third partner or- originally. It's been ten years since we started Backpage, and before then, I had I'd actually got a literary agent. I sort of convinced this one other person that some of these ideas were worth investing some time in but we never could find a publisher for any of them uh but yeah they one of them at least one of them has has sort of never really left the back of my mind and i was toying around with some ideas of turning it into a podcast this very morning that's quite spooky actually yeah it's it's always you know i would say that every few weeks I, i would think about it and every few months I would semi-pitch it to martin because we never start anything that you know we we don't both sort of completely buy into because whether it's a book or a podcast the way that we work we are really all in for you know sometimes six months sometimes a year sometimes longer on any any one project so we both really have to be completely sold you know we have to be completely bought into it and so every few months i'll, I'll raise this 10 year old idea <laughs> and might <laughs> might not find a new polite way to decline <laughs> I wait and see if uh, if that develops further with interest. And I mentioned as well in the introduction, obviously, you know, you started by publishing books, but very much podcasts are quite a big part in, in terms of Backpage Press's profile. And I just mentioned two of the podcasts, obviously the big interview with Graham Hunter, but the other one between the lines, which some really fascinating gems within that in terms of telling the stories behind the books, behind the articles, behind the features, which again, it's, it's kind of pulling that curtain back and, and showing readers a wee bit of what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, that's been really, really amazing to sort of see the reaction to Between the Lines because you never really know. Martin and I together are such a small focus group, you know, we're such a small sort of sample size when it comes to trying to figure out what people are going to be actually interested in. We've spent 
probably many, many Mondays in the office. Uh, at the time, it sort of felt like wasted hours, but it, you know, wasn't really talking about long reads or, you know, documentaries or um, books that we've read on sport. You don't really just talk about the content, especially with our background in journalism. We would always talk about the process as well. And we'd have those conversations with writers when we met them, whether it was about the project that we were hoping to work together on or just socially. You know, we'd always talk about something that they were doing, something that we'd made or something that we were we had a sort of shared interest in. Eventually, we figured that those kind of conversations, especially with creators, would make for um, interesting podcasts. I think they're fantastic. Really, Martin has taken the helm of Between the Lines more so than me, I would say. So I'm primarily listening to them either as an editor or as a as a listener. And yeah, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because I think it's a really interesting show. For the this podcast, obviously, Neil, I'm just taking you on your own literary journey, and that goes all the way back, first of all, to childhood. And I always ask people to choose the the favourite book from childhood, and the book you've chosen is a book called The Magic Paintbrush. <laughs> and I've heard guests discussing novels that they read as children and the truth is that a big part of my sort of literary life stems from the fact that I wasn't a big reader when I was a young child at all I was really more interested in playing football and I would just do that for um, far too much of my life and run around with my pals and I wasn't really a reader so I was thinking about this entry into the list and I thought what books did I read you know before I get to the one that will go into the next slot which books predate that part of my life. I couldn't think of any any novels that I read. Um, I was always okay at English. In fact, I was, you know, I was, I was good at English. I could respond to texts that I was reading in the classroom and I could write about things that were happening in my life and around me. But I don't think I came from that much of a sort of reader's house. Like my old man, he doesn't read, never has really kind of read novels. He was an educator. He's worked in education his whole career, and um, he's sort of a historian as well. He's he's written he's written books. He's written books about his his favorite our favorite football club, Falkirk. You know, he's he's written five volumes of their history. But I can never remember seeing him reading a, a novel or or even a narrative nonfiction book. It just didn't happen. So yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I didn't really read many novels. So the magic magic paintbrush is an old Chinese folktale. And we had, as I'm sure the majority of households in the country, had a bunch of these ladybird pocket hardback books. You know, I got a bunch of them for my kids when I became a father and I couldn't find this one. It was my favorite when I was very, very young. So the story of the, the magic paintbrush is about this kid called Liang. He's a poor boy. He's grown up and uh, he wants to be an artist. OK, but he can't afford paint. So um, he, he draws, you know, he gets pebbles and he draws pictures of animals and stuff on the on the stones in his village in China and then one night a magic old man visits him in the night he visits him in his dream and he leaves behind the magic paint the titular magic paintbrush so he wakes up and he finds the magic paintbrush which doesn't need paint it's magic paints a a bird on his wall in his room and then as soon as he's finished the painting of the bird the bird comes to life so then he tries a fish same thing happens and um he doesn't need anything then, doesn't matter that he's poor, because he can paint anything that he needs. And um, he can help all the poor people in his village by painting anything that they, they need. But kind of word gets out and, and he gets abducted by the sort of evil emperor who wants him to paint all the riches in the world for, for himself. So he eventually escapes the emperor by painting his means of escape, a, a rope to climb down and, and a horse to escape on. 
And then he becomes an artist. He becomes the artist that he always wanted to be, but he doesn't finish his painting. He always just leaves a little bit unfinished so that it doesn't come to life. He's selling these paintings, so he's making money from being a genuine artist. But then the emperor finds out about him because this, this fat guy walks behind him when he's painting um, a bird and he kind of bumps into him and the bird accidentally the splash of paint finishes the picture, the bird flies off. And uh, he's, he's kind of rumbled and the emperor's after him again. And eventually the emperor ca- captures him and, and makes him paint a boat. So he paints him a boat. So now you go paint me the sea so I can sail on the boat. So he paints him the sea. The emperor and all the soldiers are afloat on this big boat, but it's not going anywhere. And the emperor says, now you must paint me the wind so we can sail. And so he paints him the wind. He paints him a stormy wind, paints him a really big stormy wind. And, and the waves start engulfing the, the boat. And eventually everybody on the boat drowns. And Leanne just walks away. And the last panel of this children's picture book is the bad emperor sinking beneath the waves. And Leanne's walking away holding his paintbrush. But he, he looks really sad. Like he, he's not like, um, you know, it's not a sort of joyous victory for him. It kind of reminds me of the, the end of sort of one of these movies that Denzel Washington makes these days when he's like an avenging angel and he's just destroyed all the bad guys, but he hasn't really found happiness. That's quite dark in some respects for a kid's book, that, it, particularly that kind of that ending as well. It's, I mean, there, there are definitely there, there's tropes in there that you can find in, in any number of these um, children's stories from that series. I don't want to build it up into more than it is, but there's a reason that it's survived hundreds and hundreds of years, that story being passed down and you know there's a there's a rhyming version now that um Jolly Donaldson did a, a rhyming version and there's been several incarnations in English of of the magic paintbrush but yeah, I mean I don't know how much there is to I, I, I thought you might want to know the story but I don't know in terms of themes and I don't know how much we can go into it beyond that but you know it's funny because I think I think when people look back at their children and obviously people start to read at different ages but different books have a different impact on them so sometimes it's the the earliest book that people remember sometimes it's the one that had the most profound impact or it's the one that maybe got them on onto reading so there's not it's like it's like this whole podcast there's no hard and fast rules so it's whatever one kind of resonates with you and it was interesting i didn't i wasn't familiar with the story either from my own childhood or from when my kids were younger but obviously the fact that julia donaldson had, had done this version and have you got that version to read to your kids no, I haven't. My my children haven't seen. I mean, they're both they're, they're sort of ten and twelve now. I don't know if I could probably just about get away with it with my son, but certainly not with my twelve year old daughter who uh, has already graduated onto YA fiction. But I don't think I knew about the Julia Donaldson version, and I and I wasn't able to find the original when they were both of the same age that I was when I would have had it in my room or the room that I was sharing with my brother at the time. In terms of your, you know, you said you maybe weren't a, a big reader when you were a you're a kid more want to go out and play football but then if I take you on to the kind of more teenage formative years and the book that you've chosen then and I'm guessing by that point and when you were, you emailed me your choices there was a couple and you you mentioned the one you chose is Sunset Song by Lewis Grassic Given but the line that was interesting when you were saying to me was there was a teacher who kind of changed your life. Completely uh, so when I was 15 we were living in Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire and then the summer of 1990 I was 15 and our family moved to Castle Douglas in Kukubisha. And my brother, my big brother that year, he left home as well for university. So it was a big, big change in our family sort of situation. I started at this new school and straight away, this English teacher, Philip Oswald at Castle Douglas, he sort of, um, right from the start, saw that I had, I don't know, he pushed me, do you know? He pushed me and he sort of challenged me to read more and write more right from the start. and. I don't know if you've got the complete 
library of forever at your at your fingertips. I don't know how you choose which books to recommend to people, but he gave me On the Road by Jack Kara to read one summer. And then as a class, I remember he chose for a Sunset Song, which was his favorite book. I mean, at the time, I'd gone from naught to 60 in no time at all. So I'd gone from really not being interested in novels to suddenly sort of reading everything that they could throw at me. So I was getting recommendations from Mr. Oswald and I was I'd met a bunch of sort of interesting people around my own age and I was getting recommendations of books and recommendations of, of albums and, and my head was kind of getting opened up really. But yeah, those two those two books. On the Road was perfect for me at that time. And then Sunset Song is a book that stayed with me. I've got both I've got copies of both of those books still, many copies actually of both. Sunset Song is the one definitely that, that stayed with me. It's you know, it's set in the same part of the world that I was leaving or that I had just left, the northeast of Scotland. Um, it's set in the very rural northeast of Scotland around the time of the First World War. And, you know, we we didn't live in that rural place. Dunhaven isn't isn't quite, you know, the sticks, but I knew those places and I knew that land that Lewis Grass had given describes uh, in that novel. There was a connection there, you know, straight away. But there's also something, although it's of its time, there's also something about Sunset Song that is really easy to connect to. I mean, I felt that as a 15 year old who hadn't read much, you know, it's not, it's a classic, right? But it's not a book that keeps you at a distance, I don't think. Because what I love is, uh, you know, that idea that not everybody's lucky enough to come in contact with a, an English teacher who obviously not only just has a passion for literature, but obviously knows his audience as well. You know, there must have been, you know, particular reason why he would have chosen that book for a class, but then that particular reason why he sees that something like On the Road, for example, would resonate with you at that particular age. And that's, i say, that's something that if you're able to do that as a teacher, you know, you're imparting that, that love of literature to somebody for the rest of their life, really. And that's a kind of gift that they're passing on. Incredible. I mean, I don't know if I've spoken to a lot of people um, about this guy and an incredible amount of people who I had that sort of conversation with have had a teacher or had a teacher in their life. One, there's always one name that, you know, not always, but there's often one name that springs to mind and, and they'll say, oh, you know, there's this guy, there's this, this teacher and, and they'll speak about, you know, their teacher. I'm 45 years old now and every now and then, you know, every every few weeks, like he'll he'll come into my mind because if we hadn't moved down there that summer and if I hadn't if I hadn't met him, it's a hundred percent that I would have done something entirely different with my life. Yeah, it's an incredible influence that that a teacher like that can have on you. Did you ever go back to the school at all after you'd finished, or is that just one of those things that you know once you leave school, that's it, you leave that behind? Well, it was weird because you know we moved that summer, and then I left school when I was seventeen. I left I left school after my fifth year, so oh, you know I was only there for two years, and then my parents left to go back to Falkirk, which is where they were from originally. Very very soon after that, so you know within two years I was gone, and then shortly after that I had no family ties to to return there. So I kept in touch with Philip for a few years, a good few years. So we emailed back and forth every now and again, and. And then I haven't for a while. I know that I know that he's retired now, um, but yeah, I, I don't know why. But maybe I should send him a link to this podcast, Paul. <laughs> I think because I think you're absolutely right about. I've told the story on the podcast before about my English teacher in fifth year, a guy called Peter McGee, and he gave all the the guys Catch Twenty Two. It was just revelatory to the point where I kept my copy that and still have it from fifth year so effectively I just stole it but that's the impact <laughs> that book had on me but again I've never I never saw him again after I left but I always at some point wish I could have bumped into him just to say what you did was just fantastic not for just for me but for a whole that whole class 
he was a phenomenal teacher, you know, not just because he gave us a couple of cool books that stayed with me, but well, I had a real connection. I'd know what, what other, what my peers thought of him or, or kids down the line as, as he kind of got older. But he was unlike any other teacher I had. He was, he was really kind of direct and sort of challenging at times to his kids. I remember one, one story that I'll tell you is I remember when the first Gulf War started and I'd been, I don't want to get memories mixed up. I was definitely in my bedroom. I had the smallest portable black and white TV in the world that I think my mom had got free with a kettle or something um, in the early 80s. And I was doing my homework on the desk and this little thing was sat next to me. And I think there was a game on. I think there was a like a midweek match on. They interrupted it to cover the outbreak of the war, the, the first Gulf War. Do you remember it was like the smart bomb war, cameras on the missiles going down in Iraq. And so it was pretty late on a night, on a midweek night. And we went into school the next day. And obviously there was no internet, because I was saying. So you hadn't really been exposed to much news about, about it. It would have even been pretty late for the newspapers to get a lead on what had happened and we went into class that morning and we all sat down and um Oswald comes in the room and he's like totally straight faced he's like I can't believe the news and everyone's sitting there going yeah the, yeah the war is pretty heavy and he's like well obviously like some of you are 16 now and you guys have been getting called up you know you're gonna have to head out to training pretty soon and we're like, you know, what are you talking about? And he, he spun this this line that the conscription was um, had been announced that morning, and that if you're 16, <laughs> if you're 16 or older, that was it. You're gonna you're gonna be going to the Gulf. It didn't it didn't take that long for him to get rumbled, but he, he held it together for a good sort of five or ten minutes. It was fairly impressive, and it became less, five or ten minutes. You know? Well, it, it became a lesson though. You know, it became a lesson about the differences between previous conflicts and that one, and the right and wrongs of of warfare and you just kind of roll it into a conversation just one final question on on sunset song obviously that's part of the kind of trilogy did you did you go on and read the other two books in the kind of scotch queer i never did and the reason this is gonna this is gonna stretch into the next category or two but the reason is that i've always been a really slow reader and when i started reading novels i found that i would read at the the speed that i'm speaking to you now (laughs) You know, I'm basically reading it to myself in my head the whole time. I've always had a sort of backlog of books to read. And I think one of the editions I have downstairs is of the trilogy, Cloud Tower and Grey Granite. I'm pretty sure I haven't read the other two. I'm almost certain that I haven't read the other two. I'm sure I'd remember I've, I've never kind of gotten past Sunset Song. To be honest, I think you're not alone. I'm, I'm the exact same. I, I read it a few years after school, but I've never gone on and read the other two. So... You know, Sunset Song, I think, is so perfect anyway, so we can settle on that one. Great. And before we move on, I also just want to say that at the same time, when I was down the road there, there was a guy a couple of years older than me who gave me a copy of The Bridge by Ian Banks, and that was another that was another game changer. You know, Ian Banks has, has been my guy basically since then. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Neil White. And Neil, we're on to the third choice in this podcast, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. Yeah, recommending books is a, an incredible thing to do, um, and it's become a big part of my professional life as well. I remember a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, Martin, who's the other half of Backpage, and I, we went down to um, the offices of Canongate in London, and we met Jamie Bing, who is sort of legendary figure in publishing he's he's so famous for never letting you leave without without a book in your hand 
and he did you know he, he you know he took us to the shelves and he grabbed one for martin and one for me and his, his enthusiasm for the the books that he was working on or had published was just incredible and i think it's a fantastic thing to do is to pair a book with a person now i'm not sure he did that because he'd only just met us but to be able to pair a book with a person and be confident that you know this is going to be a jam for them i think that's pretty that's pretty cool i struggled with finding the one that i would sort of recommend most because recently we published a book about the houston astros baseball team called astro ball which was the best sports book i'd read in years uh it really knocked my socks off when i first read it and then before that I was pretty evangelical about a sports book written by an American writer called David Halberstam. It was a biography of Michael Jordan. He, he didn't speak to Jordan in the book, but by speaking to everybody else and by walking in Jordan's footsteps, he painted a more accurate portrayal of Jordan than any uh, I'd ever read and like any that I've read since. Even, I mean, we're speaking four days after the final two episodes of the 10-part Netflix series on Michael Jordan and the 1990s Chicago Bulls has aired. And it is an incredible piece of work. But at the end of it, you definitely don't get as honest and as detailed a picture of this guy who is perhaps the, the greatest athlete that's ever lived as you do in this book, which was a piece of literary espionage work by by this guy David Halberstam who 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 made his career as a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist covering Kennedy and Vietnam and Wall Street but on the side his passion was sports so every time he would do one of these pieces of work on these seismic events in American history he would also then write maybe a book about baseball or or American football or in this case basketball his book on on Jordan, I think I recommended to, I don't know how many hundreds of people over the years, especially if they had an interest in sport, although I don't think it's essential to to enjoy the book. And the style of writing, you know, this completely ego-free style that Halberstam has, where he doesn't include, he, he very rarely quotes his subject, but you come away from each passage in no doubt that he has absolutely ironclad information from like four or five primary sources. This is take it to the bank. This is the truth. I know, trust me, I'm writing it. And he doesn't feel the need to run in a quote unless that quote is in the voice of a really colorful character and it actually adds something to the piece. Otherwise, you're just getting him reporting, you know, but his reporting is grounded in the most detailed and clever research and reporting. It just, it lifts it. It set a really high bar. I mean, it's a book that it's a book and he's a writer that me and Martin talk about an awful lot. In fact, we started using Halberstam as a verb. You know, we would say we'd be working on a manuscript and uh, looking at a big, I don't know, like a 120 word quote. And, and one of us would just say, you know, we could just Halberstam that. <laughs> so, so good he's a verb now at Backpage. He's a name that I'm very much aware of from conversations with Martin and also Hugh McDonald, who's another guest. But it's, he's actually, it's, he's an author that I've actually not read any of his books. So, and every time I speak to any of them, I always think, right, I, I need to. So I think, given your praise for playing for keeps, I think I need to, I need to check that out. The other book that you mentioned when you were sending me a list was a, a book by Michael Lewis called The Big Shot. Having having just gone on about Halberstam and all that, if I was only going to be telling me about one book it would be the big short for this category because um it can overtook plan for keeps it overtook the halberstam jordan biography as the book that i was evangelically placing in the hands of other people or telling them to get a copy 
is there a connection between Howard Sam and Lewis? I'm not sure there is. Lewis is more showy for sure. Like I think Michael Lewis has got more of an identifiable style. Halber Stam is, as I said, he's ego free, gets out of the way and he's he's reporting. But Lewis's great skill is you could call it like storifying. Like he's he's he he gets these kind of complex issues that have typically got lots of data around them. And he has an eye for character. So he identifies who he needs to speak to, probably who he needs to to befriend and coerce into kind of helping him tell his story. I know he's got a good eye for an outsider. You know, I think he's drawn to outsiders, the outsiders who, who sort of crack this code and kind of reveal a truth about something that's more mainstream, I think. And the big, the big short is the perfect example of that. It's a book, basically it's a book about capitalism. A few of his books are books about, about capitalism. To tell you my opinion of the big short, I'll tell you a story about a funeral I was at last year. So it was at a funeral that, you know, I was barely qualified to be there. It was a sort of family friend of my wife had lost somebody. So my wife was there to support the family friend. And I was there with with my wife. So we're at this table and the conversation got onto. I was like the younger, comfortably the youngest person at the table. And, and I'm not that young anymore. And the conversation turned to overseas aid, the amount that Britain spends on on aid to foreign countries. A couple of people at the table were complaining about about this because we were in um, austerity measures and they didn't think it was right. So I compared the amount of money that we spent or were spending then on foreign aid with the amount of money that we'd spent bailing out the financial industry on the back of the 2008 crash. It's a really interesting and important comparison to bring to any consideration of money that the government is spending on pretty much <laughs> pretty much anything. And it's going to be very relevant very, very soon. You and I speaking during lockdown for COVID-19. And on the back end of this, whenever that is, there's going to be some really momentous decisions about public spending being made. And I think the big short will be ever relevant as a reminder of what happened in 2008 and where it came from. So for anybody who hasn't who hasn't read it, it's about the the subprime mortgage market in the United States of America pre-2008, which doesn't sound that interesting, but that is ground zero for the global 2008 financial crash that led to however many years of austerity governance in this country immediately prior to the situation that we have now, which is going to trigger yet more austerity, likely. So I think it's an essential text. I don't think there's anybody listening to this podcast to whom this story is not relevant. And Michael Lewis tells it in a way that you, <laughs> he turns it into a page turner remarkably. And I just think it's a wonderful piece of reportage. And I think it's an incredible story that connects with all of our lives, unfortunately. It is. I mean, obviously, that's, first of all, the subject matter, as you say, to, for somebody to be able to write that as a page turner is, is a real skill because, you know, if you're just given a kind of summary of the book, then a lot of people say, well, that's not for me. But, you know, I, I think you're right. I think all these things are interconnected. And I saw a figure, and I might, I might I mean, you would know better having read the book, but it was somebody was discussing the amount of money that the furlough scheme, for example, will cost when it, when it comes to an end for the government. And I think it's I don't even think it's a drop in the ocean compared to what they spent at the time to bail out the banks back in 2008. You know, so it's all relative, but for some reason that, I don't know if the, that figure's ever revealed to the wider world because because obviously the, the response to that was austerity for years and everybody pays for that, but the, the money was there to bail them out. I was watching a, a brainless comedy called The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and 
Marky Mark. <laughs> I can't remember his real name now. Mark Wahlberg. And at the end of at the end of this comedy, which is I'm not going to recommend that movie, but at the end of it, as much as I love Will Ferrell, at the end of it, they show these a plot engine in that movie is basically a Ponzi scheme. At the end of it, they show while the 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 rock song is playing and the credits are rolling. They actually do this little sort of cartoon graphic, which explains the effects of these schemes on the American economy, in this case, as a whole. And it's staggering. You know, it's, it's absolutely staggering when you compare it to per capita. So the money that they and it runs, you know, it uses the, the 08 um, bailouts in that country as, a, as an example. So it runs the numbers of the amount that they spent bailing out these financial institutions against what that would mean per capita in the US. And it is unbelievable. And I think if people, you know, if you could have that conversation that I had at the table in the funeral on a nationwide scale, and because it's easy, it's not complicated. You can have that, you know, you can, as as Lewis does, you know, you can make this a really, really simple conversation. And if there was a way of doing that on a really national scale, then I think people would be absolutely staggered. It's not a conspiracy theory, you know, it's just what happened. But they managed to, or they managed, that does sound like consp- conspiracy theory. <laughs> the majority of people just didn't engage. Was there a part of you when, you know, you're having that, that, that conversation arises at a table of people you don't really know at a funeral where you're yeah. thinking, do I say something or do I just let it go? And then you can't because you've got this information and knowledge and, and you you know it will annoy you later if you go, I should have said something to these people. I wasn't militant about it, but I, yeah, I thought it was a relevant point to make. And it, it's it's always how I think about these things now, first because of reading that book and then it got me onto a couple of other iterations of the story one is a fantastic podcast at the time it was an award-winning podcast which is an episode of planet money so the podcast is called planet money but this episode is called the giant pool of money i think it's called the giant pool of money i'm pretty sure that's the title of the of the episode and that particular episode won um all the awards going at the time it's a a, a brilliant iteration of the same story and i recommend anybody interested in that to, to check it out i want to read a, a quote it's a Tolstoy quote that Lewis opens up the book with. And usually, I don't think authors always get it right with their sort of leading quotes. But but this Tolstoy one's unbelievable to read in 2020. So he says, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already without a shadow of doubt what is laid before him. It's perfect for the book because, you know, the people who were... The people who got these markets pre-2008 so wrong weren't stupid. They had just completely bought into a bunch of assumptions that were false. And then they couldn't reverse, they couldn't find reverse gear. That same quote, that same quote by Tolstoy, applies so much to so many conversations that we have now, I think. You know, whether it's about politics or economics or, you know, this stuff that's happening in the moment with coronavirus, you know, if independence, you know, when that was happening in Scotland, uh, when, when that was happening. When that debate was happening in Scotland a few years ago, you know, this idea that if you've already formed your opinion and you have no room for conversation, for argument, for debate, for nuance, then what's the point of thing? Which is never a good way to be anyway. Exactly. In the, the course of that, that's two book recommendations and a podcast recommendation for everyone just within that one category. So that's Playing for Keeps by David Halberstam, The Big Shot by Michael Lewis, and then the podcast, The Giant Pool of Money. Yeah, if you search for The Giant Pool of Money, you'll you'll find that one. It's great. That's a, a raft of recommendations, Neil. So therefore, we, we then take you in the other direction. And it's a book that you would never read again. And the book you chose is Wade Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. I don't want to be mean about any book because, you know, it's, it's not nice to be mean. 
And this isn't about the content. The White Oak SOC is, is a perfectly fine book. But the reason I'm choosing choosing this is because it reminds me of a time when when books were were pretty scary for me. So I'd I'd gone from like not reading at the age of 15 to leaving school at 17 and and starting to study English lit along with film and media at the University of Stirling. And the reading list was just because I read so slowly, the reading list to me was fairly terrifying. And also, you know, I was 17 and I just left home for the first time. I was doing other stuff as well. But I did struggle. I really struggled to keep up with a lot of the reading. And when I thought about that, I decided that I wanted to include one book that I remembered from that time. And White Tiger Associate by Jim Meese is, is the one that just popped into my mind. You know, I remembered being at a seminar and just wishing that nobody would ask me anything. And that's no way to be if you voluntarily signed up, you know, I wasn't enforced to to study English literature, you know, I'd done so by choice. And I found myself in this situation where I, I couldn't keep up. And I really was hating being there. Even, you know, during that time, I also read a bunch of stuff that I absolutely adored. Ian Banks, again, would, would show up to Sterling because that was the university that he'd attended once a year. And that was absolutely phenomenal. But yeah, I, I remember the White Tech SOC and that terrifying first year reading list being overwhelming and daunting and making me feel a bit uh, out of my depth. And I probably was a bit out of my depth. So no no shade, no shade on Gene Reese and no shade on, on White Tech SOC, White Tech SOC fans out there. At the time, it was burying me. I just remember that reading list kind of burying me. I take it you, put, you persevered in terms of, of your university studies and uh, did it get better? I could all, I was a, I was a cute writer. So I think I wrote myself out of trouble on quite a few occasions. I can only remember one professor who completely nailed me and gave me like a D and was like, you haven't read this. I know you haven't read this. You know, all the writing in the world isn't going to save you. But there were countless other times when I would write my way to a B minus or something when I really, I really should have been failed. So I focused on film and media eventually. That's how that problem was solved. After two years of juggling English lit with film and media and, and some politics, I focused on film and media. So instead of reading two novels and a play, I just had to show up and watch Unforgiven, followed by um, The Birds. I can do that. Uh, and you can ask me anything. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Hitchcock. I always think as well, and I've spoke to other people who have studied English literature at university, and obviously it then makes you, while you're there, and as you touched on in terms of the reading list, how you're approaching a novel as well, because you know, maybe people have taken that subject because they've loved books and they've loved reading, but then sometimes, A, you're maybe being asked to read things that you wouldn't normally choose, but then dissecting them and, and going through them in a way that you, you maybe weren't used to, and that can maybe not take away the enjoyment of reading, but it, it's a certainly a different perspective and a different approach to how you would read a book. Wow, you're totally right. I mean, I hadn't thought about that second point that you made, but it's, it's completely true. I, re I remember studying literary theory. They'd go into all these different ways, it seemed to me, to attack books. You know, like you, you could break it down with Marxist theory or you could break it down with feminist theory or, you know, like a historical perspective on a, on a book. And yeah, I, I did find it quite a joyless practice, especially I was I was super young. I wasn't particularly mature for 17. And I think I I think I wanted to read for pleasure. You know, there's one of those theories that we studied is simply called audience theory, which is based on the premise that the author of a novel or poet or a filmmaker or a musician, you know, they, they create their art and they put it out in the world. And at that point, it just belongs to you. The meaning of it is completely in the hands of the <laughs> consumer. Um, and that, I guess that's I guess where I end up is that that's that's exactly what I believe, because we read for we read for us. Eh? We read for pleasure and enjoyment and understanding 
And yeah, it, it didn't feel like that was happening for me then, for sure. Because the other aspect of that, which I remember having a conversation with Chris Dolan, who's been on a few of these podcasts, yeah. and he once he used to go into workshops sometimes in, in secondary schools and teaching creative writing. And he expected to, to go in and the English department would be full of you know teachers and they'd be talking about the latest novels they'd read etc etc and he 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 was actually surprised that how few of them seemed to to read or to read for pleasure it it took him aback and i wonder whether some of that was because it's part of their job and the way they've kind of been trained to analyze books then that it's trying to get that balance between the work side of it and the the enjoyment side of it I i think you're exactly right and that's kind of where i am now as well because i have to read a great deal for my work I kind of handle the submission side of the business. So everything that we're getting sent in by writers as books that we should consider publishing is kind of coming through me and I'm I'm kind of constantly reading critically. And then when I'm reading for me, maybe, you know, maybe that colors what I read because I tend to go to kind of comfort food. I tend to go to writers that I know or stories that I'm somehow familiar with or recommendations from, you know, a handful of people who I know understand exactly what kind of stories I'm into but my personal reading is probably now far less I don't know what the right word is Paul like challenging or highbrow or I I think I'm probably reading far more poppy books when it's just down to me than than I was before I was reading as a part of my job. Ultimately I always think it's it has to be a pleasurable activity you know and, and not every book you're going in every book has a different you know inspire different emotions in you but ultimately you need to enjoy it but it's why people don't always finish books when they don't so you know the idea that there's certain books that you know people should read or shouldn't read I, I, I've never subscribed to that idea no and I don't mean to say I don't mean to say that I mean you know some of my favorite books are, are literary books you know the categorization of like literary fiction and stuff it's kind of problematic right if you ask me because I'm pretty sure that nobody sets out to write I'm going to write a literary a piece of literary fiction and, and some of those books that would fall into that category are among my favorite books I would reread them now or if I was recommended one I'm sure I would engage with it but there has to be there has to be something there that's pleasurable and I think sometimes it's easy it's easy to find that if you have some kind of guarantor whether that's somebody you know or an author that you're familiar with or something along those lines. Well that takes us nicely on to the last category which is either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading and you gave me two books uh, one was The Man Who Came Up Town by George Pelicanos, and the other one was Mastering Small Stakes, No Limit, Hold Them by Jonathan Little. And it was two books that your wife got you for your birthday, and, and you did say she knows me well. Yeah, yeah. So it was my birthday last week, and I had a couple of books on the go, and I don't think I don't think I'd sort of really fallen for either of them. And Carrie, my wife, got me these two books. When when you asked me to do the podcast, I thought, well, I haven't really started reading these two books, but they definitely both say something about my sort of life with books, my history with books. So why not be honest and just kind of sort of deal with them? So I'll start with a book that I'm pretty sure nobody else on your podcast will have mentioned, which is Mastering Small Stakes, No Limit Hold'em. Um, so that's poker, a long way of saying it's a, it's a sort of poker strategy book. And poker is one of my, my, one of my great hobbies these days but the reason that i first got into poker was i read a book called big deal by anthony holden and that book i think it was written in the late 80s is his travel log of a series of poker games around sort of literary london and trips to um to the world series of poker in las vegas it kind of deals with poker's literary connections of which there are many 
And it's also kind of a diary of a year in the life of this professional writer, um, Holden, who is attempting to be a professional poker player at a time when there weren't many professional poker players in the world. And it's a fantastic mix of storytelling. It immediately won my heart and made me want to be a professional, or it certainly made me want to play poker more. And ever since then, me and my sort of old friends from from university, that's kind of been the way that we that we keep in touch every month or two, certainly before the current predicament we find ourselves in. We would meet up at one of our houses and over a case of beer or a bottle of whiskey, we'd play a lot of Texas Hold'em, which is the most popular form of poker. So the book that Carrie got me is a very kind of difficult to digest uh, instructional manual on how to get better at poker. But it does connect, but it does connect to this fascinating piece of nonfiction that got me started on this ruinous journey probably about 25 years ago. I mean, I take it when you when you and your friends get together, are there limits to the stakes? Because I could be the end of beautiful friendships if somebody cleans someone else out. Yeah, yeah. We met each other in 92 and we're still good friends. So yeah, nobody's, there are no vendettas. Nobody has a piece of the other person's mortgage or anything like that. It's it's all uh, it's all very reasonable, very reasonable. Yeah, but you're still you're still wanting to uh, improve your strategy for for beating the rest of them. Yeah, exactly. I know it's good. You know, it's um, five minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. That's what they say about poker. And the other book that your wife got you was The Man Who Came Up Town by George Pelicanos. Yeah, I know that you like your crime fiction. So have you had have you had any engagement with Pelicanos? I haven't. No. Okay, so George Pelicanos, I totally remember the first time I heard about about George Pelicanos. I was driving to a shift as a sub-editor at the Daily Mirror, which was freelance work. And it was the first work I got after moving down from Aberdeen, where I'd been a trainee sports reporter with the Evening Express, the local paper up there. So I was trying to make, make my way in sort of national journalism. And I was driving my little green metro from Stirling to Glasgow, the offices of the Daily Mirror, which is in the Daily Record building. And it was a Friday afternoon. And on a Friday afternoon on Radio 5, then, actually, I think it must have been a Monday because Fridays were movies, whatever day Simon May was doing the books. But let's say it was a Monday. And they had on down the line from Washington, D.C., George P. Palacanos. And he's dropped a P now. He was talking about his new novel called Shame the Devil. And it sounded really cool to me. He sounded kind of like you want a hard-boiled crime novelist to sound almost a caricature thereof, actually. You know, he was almost doing it too well, almost playing the part too well. But it sounded fantastic. I liked the story that he was describing. He was coming from a place politically that I identified with. I thought to myself, all right, when I come out the other end of this shift, I'm going to look up this book and, and see if I can get my hands on a copy. And I did, and I loved it. As I suspected that I might, and I've read everything that that Pelicans has written. He doesn't write that often these days because he's become a very successful screenwriter. He was one of the writing team of The Wire, long-running crime drama set in Baltimore, yeah. very sort of um, storied, award-winning uh, sort of box set crime drama. But his his crime writing is all based in Washington D.C. Incredible change of tone over the course of his career. Started out really, really hard-boiled and macho and kind of graphic and everything would end up in shootouts, brutal shootouts. I loved it. You know, I loved all that stuff. It was great. But now these days, the last handful of books has definitely been more um, reflective. They still have their root in, in the genre, but kind of like a sort of postmodern way. It's definitely kind of there. There's loads of accountability. There's lots of reflection 
all the all these kind of acts viewed in 360 degrees you know their consequences it's gotten really interesting so you know as much as i love is sort of wham bam early stuff this sort of late era of pelicanus is super interesting haven't started the man who came up town yet but i'm really looking forward to it he never lets me down Again, another book I'm going to have to add to my list of Neil White recommendations. And I know you like crime books as well. I know I've, I've listened to you before talking about the, the Dave Robichaud series of James Lee, but you're a big fan of. I love them. I love I love the Robichaud series. In fact, I love James Lee Burke stuff, you know, whichever series that he drops into. But yeah, the Robichaud stuff. Yeah, James Lee Burke's a wonderful kind of literary writer. He's, you know, he's, he's a poet. But he's a poet that operates in crime fiction, in genre crime fiction. And there's something about him, like he's old now. I think he might be in his like mid-80s. I don't think I'm being unkind to him. I think he's in his mid-80s. And he started to repeat tropes and even plot points in his books quite heavily. And I love it. It's like he's he's using archetype, but he's just taking it to the next level. It's, I don't know, he's, he's a wonderful writer. I love it. Have you read much James Lee Burke? I've read I've read about three or four of the the Robbie Show books, yeah. So which was why when I, I remember listening to you before talking about it, which was I thought it was really interesting just to kind of try and dissect that character, those books, you know. No, I think he's great. One thing I would say about about um, the Robbie Show series and this kind of um, obviously I'm really really interested in audio because you know we've really got one foot in publishing now and one foot in in audio production, and you know I don't think those two areas are distinct at all. I think there's a lot of crossover and the Robichaud books are fantastic audiobooks. They're read by an American actor called Will Patton, who you would, he's one of those guys, you know, if you saw him in a movie, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Oh, he's that, and I, I know he was in this film and this film and this film. And he was always like the fourth villain. You know, he's always the fourth guy. He's not the star, he's not the supporting star. He's not the other person, but he's the fourth in the, in the cast list. So he's a fairly recognizable face if you saw him. And when you just, I would love, I would love to interview Will Patton about his audiobook readings of the Ruby Show series, because he's just, I know he must have taken absolutely ages setting it up in his head how he's going to do it. Because the Ruby Show series is written first person. So it's, it's, it's narrated essentially by the character of Dave Ruby Show. And he's gone into this character, like he was given a part in a Sam Peckinpah movie or something, you know, he's he's really decided to construct this character, this weary New Orleans detective. And then he changes up because he's got to do all the other characters too. So he's changing, <laughs> he's changing up for this other character and then he's changing up for this guy. This character's a female, she's, he's going to go there too. And then there's like an old black dude, he's going to be an old black dude as well. So it's a fantastic feat and he does it. So I think they're among my favourite audiobooks, the Robichaud ones, because he's so skilled. I would say it's between the Robichaud series of audiobooks and Alan Partridge's audiobooks, which are read by Alan Partridge to great comic effect. Well, if Will Patton is listening to this podcast, then get in touch and we'll put you in touch with Neil White. <laughs> Sadly, Neil, we've just about come to the end of this podcast. If MD wants to kind of reflect on Neil's book choices, you can go to my website, www.paulcuddehy.com. Each of the guests have their own individual page where I've just listed all the book choices they've made just if you if you want to try and follow up on those recommendations. But it's been a, a real joy sitting uh, talking to you, if either wonders of, of Skype about books, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. We've had an absolute blast, Paul. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20 
on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.